Paging Dr. Randy. Paging Dr. Randy. I just got on call and they're paging me already. They want me to do work as soon as I get to work. Come on, let's go. Yes, you, come on. Well, I'm Dr. Randy, nice to meet you. I'm a licensed family medicine physician. Since you're on call with me today, I want to make sure you learn as much as possible. Me and a few of my special friends are here to give you all the tips and info you need to live a balanced, healthy life. Are you ready to be on call with me? I hope so. So let's get it going. Our shift starts right now. Welcome back, healthy people, to On Call with Dr. Randy. Thanks for taking a break from listening to Beyonce's album and listening to me. Don't worry, the queen will still be there to listen to after you learn something here. Speaking of learning something, I hope you learned something from last week's episode on plant-based diet and the possibility of it reversing some conditions. If you haven't checked it out, you should. It will really make you look at your overall diet differently. This week, I have on Dr. Stephen Bradley, a board-certified anesthesiologist and medical ethicist. Dr. Bradley is an assistant professor of anesthesiology and the host of the Black Doctors Podcast, where he interviews minority professionals in a variety of career paths. I brought Dr. Bradley on to discuss the role of anesthesiologists during surgery. How do they actually put people to sleep? How do they wake people up? What happens when something goes wrong during surgery or when they try to wake you up? How do they handle those situations? And also, how can you make yourself the best surgical candidate before potentially having surgery? These items and many more will be discussed on this episode. So you're definitely going to learn a lot. So make sure you pay attention. And before we go on call with Dr. Bradley, I love for you healthy people to do a few small things for me. Just a few. They're free, so don't worry about it costing you any money. One, follow me on social media if you're not already doing so. Those links to my social medias are located in the show description. Number two, share this podcast if you enjoyed it. Share it with a friend, family member, anyone. Just share it so the word can go around about the podcast. And last, fill out the short survey located in the show description. It's very short. It's less than 10 questions. Just hit the link and knock it out for me, please. I'm trying to learn a little bit about my audience, aka you healthy people. I know a little bit about my location of some of my listeners, but I want to learn more about you individually. So knock out the survey for me if you can. If you can't do all those three things I listed, just do one. I appreciate it. Thanks. Now let's go on call with anesthesiologist, Dr. Stephen Bradley. So welcome to another great episode of On Call with Dr. Randy. I have Dr. Stephen Bradley with me. He's an anesthesiologist, podcaster, musician, military man. Anything I'm else I'm missing? Like great at playing spades. No, no, no. You covered it all. Don't I can't tell my secrets. I don't know how to play spades. All right, we're gonna teach you one day. Just don't renege. That's all you need to know. Just don't renege, and you'll be all right. So, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you having me on here, man. Great, great. So I wanted to have Dr. Bradley on to discuss the wonderful world of anesthesia. So it's a lot of people who've kind of been hitting me up about surgeries they have coming up and what they mm -hmm. need to do to prepare for those surgeries. So I want to start off with just 
anesthesia. People have heard of this specialty, but don't necessarily know all the time what it all encompasses. So what is an anesthesiologist? Give us a rundown. Man, uh, it's such an important conversation to have because a lot of times what I notice is people are so concerned about surgery, which is normal, right? Somebody's going to cut you open and you're so concerned about the surgery you're going to have that you don't really think about the anesthesia portion until the day of when you're sitting in the pre-op holding area. So as an anesthesiologist, um, your anesthesiologist has, is a medical doctor. There's studies that people don't really know that anesthesiologists are physicians, first of all. Uh, anesthesiologists are physicians. We've completed four years of medical school, and then we've completed a four-year residency program in anesthesiology. Sometimes we also complete an additional year of fellowship training. Some of the fellowships are pediatric anesthesia, cardiothoracic anesthesia, doing open heart surgeries and, and really complex stuff. You can do an extra year specializing in obstetric anesthesia, uh, regional anesthesia, which you're doing nerve blocks mostly, um, critical care medicine. You can work as an intensive care physician uh, or even a chronic pain specialist. But my job as an anesthesiologist, what I tell my patients is to keep you safe and comfortable during your surgical procedure. And we use a number of different modalities. The reason our training is four years is because we need to know the how to perform and to plan the best anesthetic for each person that we come into contact with. We take a look at your medical problems, your comorbidities is a word we use, anything that's going on with your heart, your high blood pressure, if you smoke, um, if you have gastroesophageal reflux, have you had problems with anesthesia in the past? We take all of those issues that you're coming to us with, we look at the type of surgery you're having, and then we help you make an informed decision um, about what is the best way to keep you safe and comfortable during that procedure. We develop a plan. We're working either by ourselves. Sometimes we're working in a care team model with nurse anesthetists or anesthesiologist assistants or resident physicians. If so, we discuss that plan with them. Then we take you to the operating room and keep you safe and comfortable during that procedure. Okay. So you kind of talked about all the different fellowships that anesthesiologists can go to. What do they learn in each one of those special um, fellowships that kind of sets them apart? Yeah. So during our residency training, we spend several months in the subspecialty areas. So during residency, I actually did about six months working in an intensive care unit. There's times I'm the only physician on call in the unit overnight. We're rounding on patients, developing plans for critically ill patients. I spent two months in the chronic pain clinic where I'm seeing patients that are suffering from chronic pain, doing procedures under uh, x-ray guidance where we're doing nerve injections, epidural steroid injections, developing plans for management of complex um, um, pain um, phenomena that patients may have. Pediatrics, um, you know, during that year, yes, as a resident, I did two uh, months of pediatric anesthesia. As a fellow, you spend a whole year doing pediatric anesthesia. You'll learn how to take care of the sickest of the sickest uh, kids, folk, kids that are born with developmental or congenital heart defects that are having heart surgery. And you become really good at those tiny little humans you're trying to place IVs in tiny little veins. You're trying to place breathing devices in tiny little airways. And you also spend some time in the uh, pediatric ICUs, learning how to care for complex, ill children. For cardiac anesthesia, that's an extra year fellowship. Uh, we, we do two to three months of cardiac anesthesia during residency. But again, fellowship is a year where you're spending 
11 or 12 months doing open heart surgeries. You're doing ECMO cases, which is extracorporeal uh, membrane oxygenate, oxygenate, oxygenate. You there, oxygenation. I got There you. we go. There we go. <laughs> I swear my degrees are real, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're learning how to manage these super sick patients, putting these big cannulas or tubes in them so that they can go on a bypass machine. You're learning how to run a transesophageal echo probe where we insert an echo uh, device. It's a, like a small tube that goes down the throat and has an ultrasound machine that looks at the heart in real time during surgery. We can look at the blood flow going through your heart. We can look at how the valves of the heart are working. We work hand in hand with the surgeon if they're replacing your mitral valve, for example, and we're saying, hey, this looks pretty good. There is might be a still a leak and you can tighten that valve up a little more. Obstetric anesthesia, again, another year of training where you're working with high risk OB patients. We know that, you know, childbirth can be a very dangerous time. It's a very mm -hmm. happy, joyful time, but um, there is such a thing as high risk obstetrics. And for women that are at increased risk of having heart failure during pregnancy, or uh, need additional care, you can have that extra year of training to be able to, to take care of all of these patients. I am actually gonna go back and do a critical care fellowship. Again, I did six months during residency, but this is a whole year working in ICUs where I learn and am board certified to be an intensive care physician. I think I covered most of them. There's a, there's a regional uh, fellowship, which I did regional anesthesia throughout residency as well, where we're doing nerve blocks, or procedures for pain control afterwards. A regional fellowship gives you an uh, entire year to become proficient at that. Okay, all right, that's a lot of good information. I, I know sometimes we as physicians on the other side, we don't know all that encompasses anesthesiologists and in different fellowships. Um, my friend Lauren, she did a cardiac fellowship, um, completed that a couple of years ago. What's making you go do the critical care? Yeah, so I went to Howard University, College of Medicine, and I remember being a medical student. I was the first generation, first person in my family to go into medicine, and I didn't know what I wanted to go into. I thought I wanted to become an orthopedic surgeon. I get to medical school. I meet the other, you know, orthopedic surgeon um, wannabes, and, and I was like, oof, the, the, the vibe and personality was not me. It's something you had to really invest in and get started early on. And I was kind of lost, honestly, for the first two years. I just didn't know what was going to be right for me. And I had a buddy that kind of put me on to anesthesia. But before I really set my sights on anesthesia, I was working in the ICU on my general surgery rotation. We would round up patients in the ICU. If they were, you know, we would have a, a census of maybe 12 patients, maybe three or four of them would be in the ICU. And I would start to deliberately pick up those patients. I have this weird thing that I do where, if there's something I don't particularly like, I'm not particularly fond of, I will teach myself to, to like that thing, whatever it is. And everybody hated taking care of the ICU patients. They were very complicated. You had to do a really long um, progress note and presentation. And I said, you know what? I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to like crack the code and really enjoy this. And I did. I learned to love those critically ill patients, the physiology that I'm learning and reading about and discussing and Dr. Saram, this, this old uh, Indian dude, uh, like like the Yoda of the ICU, he had this like, old scrub, his taco meat would just be hanging out and he'd stand there on rounds and like stroke his chest and just just like 
pimp you incessantly, just go on and on with it. And he knew everything. And I'm like, yo, one day I'm going to be like Dr. Saram. Um, I want to have, you know, medical students that look like me, that don't look like me, that, that just look at me as this person that knows so much and can break down this information very simply. And that's what I wanted to do um, because I joined the military out of residency. I was unable to complete the fellowship directly uh, after finishing residency in 2018. So I'm concluding four years of service on active duty this summer and returning to complete fellowship. Okay. All right. All right. So that, uh, that explains it all. And for those who don't know, pimping is asking questions, <laughs> not literally having Dr. Bradley out there on the stroll trying to get money for him <laughs> and for the hospital. So we got to make sure. these student loans. Yeah. Yeah. So we got to make sure that we know everybody know what he means by pimping him while he's out there on the rounds. So let's talk about patients and what they need to do to prepare for surgery for you specifically that helps you out. Yeah, the biggest thing that patients can do is just take care of themselves. I know it sounds very simple and vague, I'll get more specific, but we want you walking, exercising, being in the best shape you can possibly be. That'll help keep you away from surgeons, away from hospitals, away from anesthesiologists. Don't stay away from uh, family practice doctors because you need to see them. Come and um, see so, me. Yeah, if we need you seeing. Uh, yeah, if you're yearly physical, you need, you need to see Dr. Randy because uh, that'll keep you from having to see a bunch of other people that you don't want to see. Um, but to get more specific, there's a number of reasons that people have surgery, whether your, your knees are worn out and you need to get those replaced, whether your coronary artery disease has gotten bad enough to where you're having chest pain and you need an open heart surgery, whether you're coming to the hospital to deliver a baby, whether um, through a vaginal uh, delivery or a cesarean delivery, a number of different reasons. One of the biggest things that we need to do to keep you safe and comfortable for your procedure is make sure that you haven't eaten anything within a certain amount of time. The American Society of Anesthesiologists has very clear guidelines for preoperative fasting. Basically, we want your stomach empty because we're gonna give you some sedation, we're gonna give you sleeping medication, we're gonna get you off to sleep. And when that happens, the sphincters, the, the um, kind of valves on the tube of your esophagus and stomach, they get relaxed. If you just had a Big Mac and you come see us, we put you to sleep, there's a large chance that Big Mac is gonna come up your throat and you no longer have that gag or that cough reflex. Whereas if you're, if you're awake, you shove your finger in your throat, it's gonna gag and cough. And that's a protective airway reflex because your vocal cords are slamming shut and that's keeping food, liquid, all that from getting into your vocal cords. When I induce anesthesia, you fall asleep and you no longer have that reflex. So that Big Mac's gonna come up and they can find its way into your lungs, which is a terrible prognosis. It can lead to a long hospital stay and even death. So there's specific hours for when you can't eat. For most healthy people, eight hours from a solid meal. And you can have clear liquids, which are like uh, tea, which are coffee without cream, uh, because cream has fat in it. It's one thing that it slowly empties from the stomach. You can have water, you can have Gatorade up to two hours before your surgery. Um, that's one of the biggest things that, that folks come into we're going to ask you, hey, did you eat? Because if you ate that morning, we're going to have to significantly delay or cancel 
your surgery. The five things that I teach my residents to quickly preoperatively evaluate a patient. Now, mind you, we've probably, especially if you're at a teaching hospital, we've probably looked up your medical history beforehand. I'll usually look up my patients the night before or, you know, you know, half hour, 45 minutes before surgery, if it's a bread and butter, pretty straightforward procedure. Otherwise, I'll meet you the morning of. I'm going to ask you, when is the last time you ate or drank anything? If you've checked that box, I'm going to ask, uh, have you had any problems with anesthesia? Have you or anybody in your family ever had any problems with anesthesia? There's a very rare condition called malignant hyperthermia. Uh, and that is when you are allergic to some of the medications that we use in anesthesia, specifically uh, neuromuscular blockade or anesthetic gas. Very dangerous procedure or very dangerous allergy and very, very, very rare, but one of the worst things that we worry about happening in anesthesia. There's a way to safely prepare for that. We just have to clean out our machines from all the anesthetic gas. We usually schedule as a first case because the anesthesia gas can kind of hang around. That can trigger an event. So I'm going to ask, hey, have you ever had any problems with anesthesia? And usually people say, well, I'm slow to wake up or my blood pressure gets low and that's cool. I could take care of that. But if they say, oh, well, my uncle died on the table or had a reaction, we're gonna start asking some more questions and determine, are you at risk for malignant hyperthermia? What can happen with someone when they have malignant hyperthermia? Yeah, so the first thing we notice when you get exposed and, and the weird thing is, you can actually have anesthesia a couple of times and not react. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have this predisposition to malignant hyperthermia. You're going to be exposed to the anesthesia gas or to the medication, uh, succinylcholine, and your body starts to overheat. It affects your metabolism on a cellular level to where your, your body's just continuously in an on mode. It's a hypermetabolic state. You start to heat up. Your muscles get very rigid. You, you start to have a fever, um, and then you start to have a hemodynamic collapse. There's medications that we can use to reverse that, but it's a, a very significant condition that we want to avoid. So I'm, I'm going to go into patient mode because I'm going to do you like how they do me. So you, you're, you're telling me that this can happen to me, and I've had surgery before, and nothing wrong has happened to me. How can I prevent this, or what do I need to do beforehand to make sure that this doesn't happen to me, Doctor Bradley? That's my southern. Country. Yeah. So, <laughs> if if it if you don't have any history of this happening in you or your family, then you're it's a good chance that you're safe. Um, that said, we all take always take precautions. Every hospital that's accredited will have a malignant hyperthermia cart that is immediately available. Your anesthesiologist, we're trained to immediately recognize the signs and symptoms of a malignant hyperthermia presenting in a patient. And when that happens, we're calling our colleagues for help. They're dragging this whole, uh, it's, usually, it's usually a refrigerator on wheels. They're grabbing it, run into the operating room, and we're giving you the antidote. There's a medication that reverses the effects. We're going to get that to you as soon as possible. If uh, there's a risk, any kind of risk that you may have linear hyperthermia, we're going to do a non-triggering anesthetic. We'll probably schedule you as a first case of the day to decrease the amount of anesthetic gas you're exposed to. We take the vaporizers off the anesthesia machine. We use a total IV anesthetic and avoid giving you any of those medications. Okay. All right. So that's good information. So, so what's the third thing that you were naming on the list? 
The third thing is going to be uh, any allergies to medications. Always important to know, is there something that we can't give you or that you're concerned about? We get a lot of things that are actually not allergies. There's a difference between an allergy and an intolerance. So like, oh, fentanyl, which is one of the opioids we use to treat pain, makes my stomach hurt or makes me nauseated. That is an intolerance. It's not quite an allergy, but I'm not going to have that you know, discussion with you right now. I just want to know, you know what works for you for your pain. Um, but a lot of times like penicillin, it gives you hives or a rash or makes your throat close up. Like, whoa, that's a big deal. We're going to avoid that medication. I'll ask what types of medications uh, are you taking and, and what medical problems that do you have? It's a, I know it's technically two, but that, you know, it's my number four. I just put my fingers up. Mm-hmm. What medical problems do you have? And then uh, usually patients are like, oh, I'm, I'm fine because everybody's healthy. And I follow it up with uh, any heart problems chest pain, uh, history of heart attack, high blood pressure. No? Okay. Any lung problems, asthma, sleep apnea, COPD. Do you smoke cigarettes? And I just kind of go through heart, lungs, GI. So any reflux or heartburn, those are kind of the big things that I worry about. Depending on the type of surgery, I may ask about other medical systems. Now, granted, I've already looked a patient up. I've already looked you up in the records. So I already know that you have a history of high blood pressure. I know you have these things, but I like to have that conversation with the patient. The the last thing that I ask is your functional status. Um, how far are you able to walk? If you walk up two flights of stairs, do you have any chest pain or shortness of breath? Can you walk two city blocks? Those are what are called uh, metabolic equivalents. Mm-hmm. And it talks about how much stress your body is used to tolerating. The reason that's incredibly important is because we say anesthesia is about as stressful as uh, walking up two flights of stairs. So if your heart is in good enough shape that you can do that, okay, I'm not worried about anesthesia stressing you out to the point that you may have a heart attack uh, in the operating room. If, because we do take care of patients that have bad functional status, that you're, you're bed bound, you're unable to walk, there is a way to take care of you safely. I may place an arterial line, which is a blood pressure monitor that goes into the artery in your wrist, monitors your blood pressure with every beat of your heart. And I may be very slow and gentle getting you off to sleep. Um, so there's always ways we train to be able to take care of all types of patients, but how we screen you and how we determine, you know, your, your functional status and level of health is a very important to developing that correct anesthetic plan for you. Okay. Okay. So those are all good tips. I hope y'all got all of that. So let's do a case example. So nothing too crazy nothing too crazy so let's just say me i'm going to surgery let's say i have appendicitis shout out to my book appendicitis on amazon i can Uh uh, figure that out and buy a copy but what are you going to do for me to prepare me for surgery like you mentioned you walking in the room you're going to ask me all these questions and they will me back to the room what's kind of the start process from your end for me, once surgery starts, I didn't eat anything for the last eight hours, mm-hmm. no past medical history, the sinus problems, I'm on some Flonase, it's controlling my sinuses, that's pretty much it, I'm in there, oh, oh yeah. right lower quadrant pain, it's like, okay, they didn't did my imaging, and now it's time for surgery, so cool. what is Dr. Bradley going to do for me to prepare me for surgery? Got you, so I got the call, we got a, what a roughly, uh, 32, 33-year-old young man, uh, BMI probably 
19 looks okay. like okay man um, i'm looking good and i'm young yeah. <laughs> Um, so what I do is first go to the operating room because we got to set up our, our operating theater. It's a little unique to our specialty that we do a lot of things that are hands-on that other people don't. So I'm going to make sure there's an IV that's set up and it depends on your, your institution that you're practicing. I'm going to make sure I have a breathing tube set up, a laryngoscope, which is the device I use to place a breathing tube. I'm going to test it, make sure the light works. I'm going to make sure I have emergency drugs available. I'm going to check my anesthesia machine. Like every time we do anesthesia for folks, we go through a systems check. We make sure we have suction available. All these things are what we ensure are in working order to do our job safely. While I'm setting this stuff up, I'm also looking up uh, Randy in the computer. I'm checking over the labs. I'm checking his medical history, make sure that you know he all he has is some sinus problems. Does he have uh, EKG on this admission? Although you know, at age of you know, nice you know, young man, I'm not terribly worried about heart problems. But, you know, I'll take a peek at the EKG. Um, oh, does he have an echo? Well, that's weird. Why does he have an echo? Okay, well, it was normal. Uh, maybe he was feeling short of breath. That's cool. Echo was from six months ago. I'll look at the echo report. Valve, everything's looking looking great. Okay. Um, then I go out to pre-op holding. I, I meet Randy. Hey, man, how you doing? Dr. Bradley, anesthesiologist. I'll be taking care of you. I'll be keeping you safe and comfortable during your procedure. Personally, like like me, I teach my residents. I use words that are that are less triggering. Like surgery scares people. I say uh -huh. your procedure, uh -huh. and I'll keep you safe and comfortable. Oh, I'm thank going you, Doctor to... Bradley. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I got a black doctor. Don't kill me. <laughs> <laughs> That's the sarcastic thing I would say before. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I've, I've heard it all. I've heard it all. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go through those questions that I answered or that I just that I just asked. You know, when was the last time you ate or drank anything? Um, are you are you throwing up any heart problems, lung problems, asthma, sleep apnea, problems with anesthesia in the past, family history problems with anesthesia? You, you function normally. I think I saw some videos of you hooping. So if you can play basketball, you're good to go. Okay. I'm going to do an airway exam. I'm going to listen to your heart and lungs, make sure I don't hear any uh, murmurs uh, or any problems with your lungs. I'm going to look in your mouth, have you open wide, stick out your tongue. I'm going to look at your teeth, see what's cracked or chipped, if anything is, because afterwards, I don't want Randy coming after me because you're trying to get your, 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 your grill uh, replaced when uh -huh. it was jacked up before you came to me. <laughs> um, I talk about risk and benefits of anesthesia. Very important conversation where I say, you know, the things that can happen when I place a breathing device, sore throat, hoarseness, risk of nausea, vomiting when you wake up, risk of damage to your lips, teeth, or gums when I place a breathing device, but I'll be very careful to decrease that risk. Some of the bad things that can happen are heart attack, death, and stroke. That is a, a risk that comes with anesthesia and surgery, but based on your medical history, you're at extremely low risk for any of those things happening. I will keep you monitored the entire time with the blood pressure cuff going off every three to five minutes an EKG that's continuous, and I'll be monitoring your oxygen levels the entire time. Okay. Is it okay if we proceed and I, and I take care of you, keep you safe and comfortable? Okay. All right. So then you're going to inject me with some medication, correct? Yeah. So typically you'll come up from the emergency department with an IV in place. Mm -hmm. Typically I will start off with an anxiolytic. It just takes the edge off things. It's a benzodiazepine called midazolam or versed. And usually two milligrams of that, that takes the edge off. It's like a beer, maybe two beers, depending on how much you drink. And it's an anxiolytic as well as a interrograde amnestic, which prevents you from forming memories from about that point in time 
until the medication wears off. Some people, especially kids, it could be very traumatic going back to the operating room. For kids that are having frequent surgeries, it's kind of nice to, to blunt those memories so they don't develop a phobia or a fear. Some people are chill and want to see the operating room. They don't care. And I kind of try to assess that. Like Randy, you know, he's probably, he looks a little nosy. He's going to want to see what's going on. Um, he's going to be looking at me crazy. So I'm going to, you know, he's going to be chill. He's going to want to see what's going on. So he doesn't get any, any verse. He's going to be looking around. So that's going in through the IV. We go back to the operating room. It's going to be a little painful, little bumps on the stretcher. Get you to the operating room table. Get you positioned. Your head's going to be up on a pillow. Um, once we're in the operating room, I'm going to put the monitors on you before I give you any additional sleeping medication. Those are EKGs. Those, that's the pulse oximetry, which measures your oxygen levels in your blood. I'm going to put uh, the blood pressure cuff on and, and have it start squeezing. And then I'm going to put an oxygen mask on. This is part of the anesthesia machine, and you're going to breathe in 100% oxygen for ideally three to five minutes. And what that does is, you know, as as humans on earth, we're breathing in about 21% oxygen. Oxygen's mixed in with nitrogen and a bunch of other partial gases. Um, probably won't put you, you folks to sleep if you're driving. Uh, I, I won't talk about science too much longer, um, mm -hmm. but your, your lungs are, are full of other stuff, not oxygen. Right. So I throw this mask on your face and now you're breathing in pure oxygen. And after about five or seven minutes, I've replaced all of that nitrogen and your lungs are now probably full of about 90%, 80-90% oxygen. Once I got you laying on the table, I'm going to start giving you some more relaxing medication. I'm going to have this oxygen mask on you. So you've breathed for five to seven minutes to replace all that nitrogen um, that was in your lungs. Now it's replaced with oxygen. The reason this is important, the next thing that's going to happen, I'm going to give you some more medication. Typically for a young, healthy person like yourself, I'm going to give you some fentanyl probably hundred micrograms of fentanyl or so is going to take the edge off of your pain. It's going to decrease your respiratory rate because it's an opioid. And then I'm going to give you some propofol. The dose is about two milligrams per kilo of propofol. I'm going to inject that into your IV. Um, people commonly refer to that as Michael Jackson juice. That is unfortunately what Michael Jackson passed away from taking in an unsupervised state that was not properly monitored. I'm going to give you that medication and it's going to get you off to sleep. It is a hypnotic uh, and anesthetic, as well as a respiratory suppressant. So it's going to impair your breathing. After about two to three minutes, you're now asleep, quote unquote, and you're now apneic. The reason I filled your lungs up with air, pure oxygen rather, is because you can now remain apneic for about five to seven minutes before you start to desaturate and we get into trouble. It is another safety mechanism that I, that I have built in. In the meanwhile, I'm going to be able to ventilate you by hand. I'm going to put the mask on your face and be able to push air into your lungs. And once you're asleep, I deliver another medication that causes muscle relaxation, mm -hmm. which helps uh, open up the airway with my laryngoscope device. It keeps the vocal cords from moving, and I'm able to place a breathing tube into your vocal cords, secure that with an inflatable cuff that kind of seals off the, the, the windpipe and keep secretions from getting into your lungs. And then I'm gonna hook you up to a ventilator. I'm gonna tape your eyes closed to decrease the risk of your eyes getting scratched or any corneal abrasions. I'm gonna tape this intratracheal tube in place and then maintain you on a volatile anesthetic gas. So you're gonna be breathing in anesthesia gas and that's what keeps you asleep during the procedure. 
I'm going to turn you over to the surgeons. They're going to clean you up, prep you, get you ready to operate. And the whole time that you're asleep, I'm there monitoring your vital signs. Fun fact. So pain is the conscious perception of a painful stimulus. So technically while you're asleep, you don't feel pain. What I'm looking at is your, the body's sympathetic response to a traumatic insult. So when you're anesthetized and asleep and the surgeon makes incision, your body is going to take that information, process it, and you're going to have increased blood pressure, increased heart rate, increased respiratory rate. That fight or flight response is what kicks in. Mm -hmm. A lot of that is blunted by anesthesia and I titrate my anesthetic in to blunt that sympathetic response because I want to maintain homeostasis. I want to maintain you at a normal heart rate, blood pressure, everything normal because the more um, you're stressed, that's putting that stress and strain on your heart. Remember I said anesthesia is about as stressful as walking two blocks. Well, that's what I want to maintain you at. Same heart rate, blood pressure, all that that you would have if you power walked a block or two. That's why you can't have that sedentary lifestyle. Um, that's exactly what I explain to my patients when I'm clearing them for surgery when they come in to see me. Do you exercise? If so, yeah. how often? Do you have chest pain or shortness of breath when you exercise? Okay, you're older, you don't exercise as much. Are you doing some housework, some right. yard work? Do you have stairs at home like Dr. Bradley mentioned? Are you having any chest pain with those activities? Because surgery, as he said, is stressful. And if you're already getting stressed out by just carrying a, a load of laundry from one side of the house to the other, you're not going to make it safely through surgery. Yeah. And, and I'll just add a caveat. That means we want to identify that early. If you're having chest pain from carrying a, a basket of laundry, that is a anginal equivalent means maybe that there may be something going on in your heart with a blocked blood vessel. So maybe we need to take you and get another procedure to look at the blood supply in your heart and maybe fix that before we fix an elective issue. Right, right. So I'm sure you've heard of these stories or patients talking about when they've been put to sleep, but still feel things or hear mm -hmm. things. Um, what kind of happens in those cases? Yeah, so awareness is one of the dreaded complications that can occur in anesthesia. Fortunately, we're pretty safe. We've really, so anesthesiologists have done tons and tons of research over the years to make anesthesia one of the safest fields in medicine, to be honest. The monitors that we have, medications that we have, it all goes into making sure you're completely anesthetized and unaware of your procedures. We're watching your heart rate, your blood pressure, all of that to make sure that your body is not responding in a way that you're going to be aware. Before I placed that breathing device, I injected a neuromuscular blockade. So that's a paralytic. I don't like to say paralytic to patients because that's a negative connotation. It's scary. Nobody wants to be paralyzed. I'll say I'll give you a muscle relaxant or I'll give you some neuromuscular blockade. The good thing is that provides a, a uh, immobile surgical field for the surgeon to operate on. This helps me ventilate as well. The worst case scenario is I've given that neuromuscular blockade and then I don't give you anesthesia. You are now paralyzed and aware. You can feel what's going on, you can hear everything, you, but you can't blink, you can't move, you're paralyzed and aware. Now, what would happen to your body is your blood pressure is gonna go through the roof, your heart rate is gonna go through the roof, uh, you're gonna start sweating, you're gonna start crying. All these are signs of awareness. Mm -hmm. The machine is built to, to alarm if your anesthetic level goes too low. 
And looking at all the signs, we should be able to know pretty quickly that you're first that you're at risk for awareness. Typically, you know, it's rare to have no anesthesia on board. Your anesthesia might get a little light to where, you know, you have less than you should. And then those signs start to kick in. But the reason we train for four years of residency is to recognize all these signs and then ensure that we're dosing the medications appropriately up front to decrease this. Now, the, the biggest, the bigger issue is the misconception of what awareness is. A lot of people come and say, well, I woke up during the procedure or I felt the procedure or I heard voices. And again, I want to validate their concerns because they're at a very um, vulnerable state about to have surgery. But I have to ask, you know, what type of surgery did you have? If they had a cesarean delivery, those are typically done under an epidural where you are awake the entire time because we want you to see your beautiful child being brought into this world. If you're having a colonoscopy or, uh, or uh, EGD, where they're putting a camera down your throat or up your, your bottom, you're getting a deep sedation. Sedation or a deep sedation, and you're not completely anesthetized. I always tell the patients before they have these colonoscopies, you may remember hearing voices, you may remember feeling pressure, you're not going completely off to sleep. That said, some people still confuse the two um, and may be concerned that they woke up during their colonoscopy. Sometimes we do procedures under nerve blocks, where if I put a nerve block in and you're, you cannot feel anything in your ankle, the surgeon's going to work on your ankle, I can technically give you no anesthesia. You can lay there because your ankle is completely numb. And, and matter of fact, like if, if I had surgery on my ankle, I would get a nerve block and I would sit there and just hang out, listen to music. That's what I would do. <laughs> but most people don't like that. So we give you a little sedation. Now, does that mean you may remember something from surgery? Yes, you may remember voices, but the difference being if you're not paralyzed, you're going to start moving and they're gonna be like, oh, hey, yo, we got to give them some more medication. Or if you're super light, like I've told patients like, hey, this is going to be light anesthesia. If you're uncomfortable, just let me know and I'll give you some more. And they'd be like, all right, put me to sleep, doc. And then got you, boom, I'll, I'll give you some more medication. So it is a very, very much a spectrum that as long as there's not neuromuscular blockade, it's, it's less likely uh, going to be actual true awareness. Okay. So since I'm still on the operating table and we're going down. The oh, train, are you? Yeah. I forgot. I'm, st I'm, st I'm still there. I'm still there. Uh -oh. And so we're going down the road of stuff going wrong. What happens or what do you do when someone starts to crash? What is your role specifically? Yeah. So as part of our board's process, we sit through about two and a half, three hours of oral board exams. We got to go down to North Carolina and they ask us questions about these cases. Uh, we have all these- so for, for, those, for those who don't know, kind of give a rundown what oral boards are because some of my, my listeners may not know what that means. Yeah, so to become a board certified anesthesiologist, we take a written board exam halfway through residency. When we finish residency, we take another written board exam. I think it's either four or six hours. And once we pass that, we can apply to an oral board exam that also has a hands-on component once we get our data signed, we practice, practice, practice. I think I practiced for about two months with two of my compadres. We were just going through case presentation. You have a pre-op portion, intra-op portion, and post-operative portion, and then some random grab-back questions. And you'll sit across from two board-certified anesthesiologists, and they just go uh, a 35-minute session, and then you go to a second 35-minute session. And so for, for these 70 minutes, they're just asking you questions about, they give you a, a case that you'll read beforehand, and then they'll ask, you know, what's your plan for induction? If 
this goes wrong, what are you going to do? What are you going to do now? What's your plan for the airway management? And they'll just go through all these questions and scenarios that really take you across that breadth of anesthesia to ensure that you're ready to practice. You have good judgment, good clinical reasoning, good communication, good fund of knowledge, and you're adaptable. So the worst thing, you know, probably a year ago, I had a young, healthy kid on the table for an, an, um, a belly surgery and the surgeon to get into the belly, you put a kind of a needle in and then you insufflate, you put uh, carbon dioxide gas that kind of blows up the abdomen and allows them to see what's going on. Well, the surgeon shoved the needle in and his face kind of just, just froze in horror as he said he felt bone. He was concerned that he shoved this needle or his trocar straight back into this patient's um, vertebral body which is your spine, right? If you poke hard enough into your belly, you can maybe feel it if you're, if you're uh, a slender individual like yourself. So the big problem is there's some really big blood vessels that run in front of that vertebral body. So the surgeon, you know, immediately understands like what this, this could be. So they very quickly actually t- um, finish their surgical procedure, um, you know, being vague just because of uh, patient privacy. And then they did have to open the patient's belly and ensure that there was no significant damage to the large blood vessels, the abdominal aorta, the inferior vena cava, because the patient could exsanguinate and hemorrhage. Mm-hmm. Now, for me, as anesthesiologists, we are there to provide the safety. We're always thinking about what can go wrong. So as soon as this happened, I am immediately on call, calling the blood bank. I am under the drapes, putting in a larger bore IV. I am drawing blood samples so I can get immediate type and cross down from a lab. Because it takes in my institution probably a good 50 minutes to get type and crossed blood available. So if this patient was bleeding and hemorrhaging, I needed a large IV to give volume to, to give uh, crystalloid and blood products. I need to make sure that we had blood products available to give this patient. Those are the things that I, I would do in case of a hemorrhage. Um, and then, you know, it's all about a differential diagnosis. Maybe a patient's having an intraoperative MI. I'm seeing EKG lead changes. I'm communicating with the surgeon. Hey, we got to wrap this up. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to start giving beta blockers. I'm going to switch to 100% oxygen. All the things that you would do to treat a myocardial infarction. Um, we have differential diagnosis. Maybe it's a pneumothorax. Am I going to do a needle decompression? Am I going to do an ultrasound to, to determine is this a, a pneumothorax or not? what's going on. So we have this whole differential that will very quickly develop. We're also very, um, uh, we, we, we don't look at calling for help as something to be ashamed of. And anesthesiologists are very quick that, Hey, if something's going wrong, this is all about the patient. We have a button in every operating room where you can have an anesthesia stat. If it's like a, a crap's hitting the fan and you're going to have some folks run in that room, or there's always a coordinator, at least where I work, where I can call and say, hey, I need an extra pair of hands. They're going to be there, Johnny on the spot, and be able to think and work through this together. In the care team model, it'd be a nurse anesthetist in there or an anesthesia assistant or resident. They'll call their attending or the, the staff anesthesiologist, and we'll be able to work and navigate through these critical scenarios safely. Okay. All right. So I didn't crash. Uh-oh. Okay. How do you wake me up in this scenario? So surgery is over. The, the surgeon has walked out. He's left the resident in there to kind of sew me up and get me ready to basically wake up. So 
Yeah. How did you wake me up, Dr. Bradley? I'm just going to hit the off button. <laughs> Is that simple? Almost, almost. So remember, you're breathing in anesthesia gas. So the first thing I'm going to do is turn off the anesthesia gas. Depending on how much anesthesia gas it took to keep you anesthetized, it'll probably take anywhere from 8 to 15 to 20 minutes for the anesthesia gas to wear off. The whole time the gas is coming off, I'm making sure that your neuro, your neuromuscular blockade, that paralytic, is worn off. We have reversal medication to make sure that there is no residual um, paralytic. I like to get you breathing spontaneously, and I titrate in opioids for analgesia, maybe some Toradol, other pain medications, some Tylenol, to try to maintain a comfortable respiratory rate. I use that respiratory rate as a surrogate for how, how, much, how uncomfortable you are. And once the stitches are, are, are done, they've got you taped up, we take the drapes down. I want to suction your airway because sometimes there's secretions that build up. I'm going to say your name, Randy, you're going to look around. Sometimes young people usually wake up fighting. You're going to be swinging on folks. Um, so it's kind of an art to make sure that it's safe. You're going to protect your airway. You're going to breathe on your own, but you're not pissed off because it's breathing tube shoved down your throat. You're going to start fighting people. And when you're like in that nice little safety area, boop, I'm going to take the, the cuff down, pull the breathing tube, put the mask back on you, ensure that you're moving air and breathing on your own. And then we're going to transfer you to the bed and move you to the recovery room. Okay. And I'm supposed to have my wisdom tea taken out in a couple of weeks. I hope I don't wake up swinging on people, not swinging, mm. swinging. <laughs> like, they better back up just a little bit so I don't throw them in Yeah, I think the, the, the biggest thing is that anxiety of people being afraid that I'm about to have pain. And that's like really scary for people, understandably so. If you know what's going on, um, you know, you can get your wisdom teeth. They can just numb you up and take them bad boys out. Um, but, you know, a lot of people don't like people working in their mouth. And they're going to probably go a little heavier on the, on the sedation to, to keep you asleep. Yeah, he asked me, do you want the laughing gas or be put to sleep? I said, put me to sleep. Just put me to sleep. Let's get it over with. So I think you provided some great information on anesthesia. I appreciate you sharing everything from your background to how to put people to sleep, possible complications, and how to wake them up. I really thank you for sharing that kind of. As we wrap up, I always like to conclude with Randy's random questions. So are you ready, Dr. Bradley? I, I'm ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> All right. So you started your own podcast, the Black Doctors Podcast. What made you start your podcast? Back in 2020, the honest truth is I'm in the Navy. Um, the pandemic was going wild, but my hospital was quiet because we had young, healthy people. That's I had some free time. I think a lot of people started hobbies during the pandemic. I was looking at social media and representation in the healthcare field. I wasn't an influencer, uh, but I said, how can I actually make a difference and reach out and provide mentorship and guidance? And, and the influencers that I saw didn't reflect my time in medical school residency. I struggled um, and I wanted to share stories that were, in my opinion, real and relatable. And I looked at different mediums to share that with. And I was like, you know, I'm gonna figure out podcasting. And that's how the Black Doctors podcast was born. As you know, you know, the, the name and your niche is all that is important. And I was like, you know, we're going to call it what it is, the Black Doctors podcast. I feel like that, you know, is, is simple. Mm -hmm. It's to the point. Um, so coming up on two years in June. 
Okay, that's what's up. So y'all make sure y'all go listen to this podcast on all streaming platforms, the yes, Black Podcast Podcast. Question number two. So you're in the military. What has the military made you better at that you didn't expect? That's a good question. The military has made me better at, I've had some early growth at my medical treatment facility. Understand that service members every three years were moving with different orders. I've actually stayed at my location for four years because I'm getting out. What that means is it's a lot of turnover. So you very quickly become one of the senior people, one of the go-tos, one of the trusted uh, positions. And fortunately, I feel that I've lived up to that expectation. I started very early with leadership roles, running the operating rooms, making the schedule. And I think, you know, I am happy that as a Black man, I was able to fill that role and provide that representation. Understand the military is so disproportionately, there's levels to everything. So when you're, you're enlisted side, it's, you know, you have a lot more young black uh, enlisted service members as opposed to the officer side and military medicine side. So these young kids are used to seeing leadership and anesthesiologists and medical physicians that don't look like them. So one of the highlights of my job is being able to go in and they see Dr. Bradley, Lieutenant Commander Bradley, um, and I wanna speak to them when I see them. I'm gonna give them words of advice, words of encouragement. I'm not gonna treat them poorly. And they get to see me hopefully, you know, living in this space where I'm a competent physician, a good communicator, a good leader. So I love that I'm able to model these behaviors and, and hopefully impact the lives of these young um, Black uh, service members for the better. Okay, that's what's up. Thank you for your service. And last question. So you're a musician, correct? I, I, I like to think I am. <laughs> okay, what, what <laughs> instruments do you play? Are you a tempo yeah. player? So I am a classically trained pianist. I took lessons in, in high school, junior high, high school, and studied for a year in undergrad, I was going to be a music pastor at one point in time before, uh, you know, paths diverged. So I play piano, read sheet music very well. I switched into pop and arranging and composing. In med school, I picked up bass guitar. So I play it with my worship team. I play keyboard or bass. I picked up acoustic guitar during residency and um, other, I, I started to really collect different instruments. So I have a herb, uh, uh, melodica, which is kind of a cross between a harmonica and a keyboard, which my, my wife hates. I don't <laughs> play that one too often. Um, I have a bunch of other random like synthesizers, which is something that I was like, I really want to learn how to play these really weird analog musical instruments. Uh, then I have an electric drum set as well. Um, so I just enjoy being able to, you know, what vibe am I on today? I'm going to go play this instrument, try and make it sound beautiful. Sometimes, you know, it takes a lot of practice. It don't always sound good, but um, I, I love being able to create and express myself in that, in that venue. Okay. So here's the real question I want to ask you. What is the most overrated instrument and what is the most underrated instrument? The most underrated instrument that is just really probably, you know, they always say that the French horn is the most complex or complicated instrument to learn how to play. 
Uh Um, So that is uh, definitely underrated. Overrated? That was a good little choice right there. The the brass French horn. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, Most overrated instrument. Mm. I I don't know. I don't know that I would say an instrument can can be overrated because to truly master an instrument takes such a lifetime of dedication. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, a, a handful of people that have truly mastered an instrument. And if it's overrated, I mean, sometimes man, you like, gotta be. I'm, I'm a musician. I mean, I played the trumpet like from middle school to high school, but I, I kind of stopped, but I, I know enough. But sometimes I'm like, man, if they took the flutes away, would we notice? <laughs> but then but you, 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 know, you need it for, tra- for trap oh, music yeah 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 okay i see i see the flu but i'm just like hmm what can be taken away that we would miss like the piccolo do we need the piccolo Every, everything adds you need it for trap music you know the baby will have his beats and then you got a little piccolo in, in the background that is true we need the we need that for uh future and all of his and then meg now meg the stallion played the flute uh Lizzo Aunt Lizzo. Lizzo Lizzo yeah Lizzo so all right so we're leaving on trap music if you didn't know that this was a black <laughs> podcast you know that now so I appreciate you Dr. Bradley we'll let you off the hot seat for Randy's random questions I know he wasn't expecting that but thank you for participating of course all right shout out all your media handles if you want to give them to the listeners oh man yeah so Stephen Bradley MD you know what I learned about branding I guess you're like oh use your name so that's me Stephen Bradley, MD, on Instagram, as well as on Twitter. And then the Black Daughters podcast is on Instagram. We have a website, www.theblackdaughterspodcast.com. And you can go there, check out our our, um, catalog of episodes. You can even leave a voice note or review for the show. And then uh, my website is stephenbradleymd.com. And, you know, there I do some medical ethics stuff at consulting. If you want to see my random music, uh, you can check out my Instagram because every month of this year, I've challenged myself to put out an original piece because I got a laptop full of stuff that I, uh, I have finished. So every month I'm going to publish a little 60 second soundbite um, and hopefully, you know, look back and see progress over the years. Maybe now we'll see what happens. So, you know, it's going to be a little bit of everything. That's, that's what's going on on Stephen Bradley MD uh, on Instagram. Okay, that's what's up. I see you doing things outside the world of medicine. It keeps you sane. Yes, yeah. sir. As I sit here and do a medical podcast, what is wrong with me? What is? Wrong oh with man, me? I love. But like, isn't it like so rewarding? Because I learned so much from podcasting. Yeah, that is true. That is true. It definitely makes me stay more educated, especially in medicine. But gives me something to do outside that keeps me kind of fulfilled. Yeah. Yeah. So, thank you, Doctor Bradley. Appreciate you hopping on. Dr. Randy, appreciate it. Wake up. I hope that conversation didn't put you to sleep. If you're scheduled to have surgery or think you may have surgery in the future, make sure you're the best surgical candidate that you can be. What does that mean? That means keeping your blood pressure under control, If you're a diabetic, making sure your A1C is at goal, meaning your diabetes is under control. Just make sure you're the healthiest you can be before going into surgery. No one wants to operate on an unstable or unhealthy patient. 
because that may increase your risk of complications during surgery and after surgery. Thank you, Dr. Bradley, for being on the podcast. Be sure to check out his podcast, The Black Doctors Podcast. Also, be sure to rate, like, and share this podcast with others if you enjoyed it. Don't forget to fill out the survey in the show description and follow me on my social media links at underscore Dr. Randy. Those links are located in the show description. Thank you to all my friends and family who have sent me positive messages about the things they've learned and the episodes that they've enjoyed. I appreciate all the positivity. It means a lot. Love you, mom and dad. I'll see you all next week. And as always, stay healthy physically and mentally.